0: Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us
1: to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate.
2: Ha. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy, joined as always by my co-host, Eric Johnson. How you doing, my friend?
1: I'm doing awesome. How about yourself?
2: Doing really well. Looking forward to this talking point. When I was a kid growing up, we always thought about the environment. I always heard about the Brazilian rainforest. So today we're going to talk to Ana Lucy Grisi about that very subject and how things are going on down south.
1: And we've also got a really good case study segment today and insight, our first real chance to dive into the geothermal issues. So we've got Gray Alton here from Terrapin and then the insight is going to be with Patrick Hansen, who has a background in both oil and gas and geothermal. Great conversations all around. And with that, let's get started.
2: Welcome to the Talking point segment of the podcast. Today, Eric, when we first got started doing this, I looked out into the world, started Googling, like, where can I get some some daily newsletters, ESG information, what's what's going on out there, what's being communicated around this particular topic. And one of the things I came across was a, was a newsletter called ESG Today. And it's for its founder, Mark Siegel, as somebody that I started listening to, or I should say reading, and looking at what they're doing. And so I reached out to him and, and just wanted to kind of get find out You know what his story was and what was going on with with these kind of newsletters. And so, I guess I want to ask you a little bit before we get started. What do you do? What information do you pull out there right now? What are some of your go tos around ESG, especially around investing?
1: Yeah, you know, from the law firm side and and working in capital markets, and you know, I get a lot of exposure through the investment banks, a lot of exposure through it from the private equity side. There's a, a lot of information sources from analysts and otherwise that that drive some of that. But I think for your for your average person who's out there and, and who may just now be realizing that one of the largest drivers for the ESG movement really is the finance side. It really is this investor mentality shift. It's it's not really PR or IR. I mean, it really is what are the millennials doing with their money, right? And so as you is, if you're just the average person out there in the investing community or and you're trying to figure out where we're headed and why are we going in this direction, you know, accessing that kind of information is critical and understanding, you know, what those drivers are.
2: Yeah, which I think sets up nicely for for what Mark's getting ready to tell us. And so before we bring him on, we're going to tell a little bit about his bio. So he founded ESG Today following a 20-year career in investment management and research. Prior to that, he worked at Delaney Capital Management, DCM, in Toronto, Canada, most recently as the firm's head of U.S. equities. While at DCM, Mark was part of the firm's ESG team, responsible for evaluating and tracking the sustainability factors impacting portfolio companies and assessing the suitability of companies for portfolio inclusion. Mark also spent several years in the sell side research industry covering the technology and services sector. He holds an MBA from Columbia in New York and a, and a BBA from the Schulich School of Business at York University in Toronto and is a CFA charter holder. And so, with that, Mark, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us.
3: Great. Thanks, Sean. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I
2: know when we first talked, one of the things that really intrigued me was kind of the founding story or the creation story around ESG today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? and what the factors were that drove you to, to create the, the newsletter.
3: Yeah. So like you said, and, and as we discussed when we first met, I come in from an investor background. You know, I'm an investor by trade. I spent 15, you know, the last 15 years working for a midsize investment management shop in Toronto. And we had like a very straightforward investment approach, you know, long, only equity focused, very broad market, all of us generalists. And, you know, the sustainability angle of investing, the ESG side of things, really was not honestly on the radar at all for us until quite recently, it was not something that really came up in conversations, maybe from the government's perspective, because we always thought it was, you know, very important to know who was running companies and who was, who, who, what was going on behind the scenes. But in, ter- in terms of, you know, environmental sustainability, the, the, the social side of things, everything else was really just just not a factor. And that really just changed very, very suddenly, maybe maybe two or three years ago and it was a very client driven process it wasn't something that was organic it wasn't something like, like you know like we decided or we you know we we you know we prophetically said oh you know this is going to be the next big thing it was just a process that you know one client two clients and then it was almost like something had happened in the world that just caused a change and we were getting lots of questions about es you know about the esg and esg was not like even a, even even a term i'd heard probably till, until maybe you know four or five years ago which is interesting because now I'm running a company that you know has it in the title, <laughs> and you know we really had to go and investigate our entire portfolios for for you know for for ESG and take you know a whole new look at like at investments from a sustainability perspective. You know you know what I found interesting is that you know we were really coming out at this from point zero. You know we didn't really know where to start. And even turning to our clients, interestingly enough, I found our clients didn't really know where to start either. They would come and say, you know, our clients didn't come and say, can you please tell me, you know, like, you know, what the greenhouse gas emissions of my, of my portfolio are. It was much more broad. It was much more, you know, I'm just interested in sustainability. I want my, you know, I want my portfolio to reflect my personal values, which is something which which, which amazingly enough has had not really been in it, like, you know, much of an issue for most for most of our clients before. And then it suddenly was. And so You know like like any good investor what what you have to do when you're facing a new field is you go and read and you go and research and you know you you really get into the weeds and so that's what we had to do so we really you know approach the you know and we're all number crunchers so this is a you know we we have some quantitative you know qualitative skills but you know as a bunch of bean counters we really have to go and familiarize ourselves with this whole new world which is what we did now normally when when we approach a topic like that or approach something totally new like that there is usually a whole world of literature and a whole world of research that that we can dive into. And, you know, the first thing that we found when we, when we started investigating ESG was that that really wasn't the case. There was lots of information, but it was inconsistent and really kind of all over the place, very company driven. So it kind of said what companies wanted to say. And, it was, you know, as an investor, your job is to compare one thing to the next, one investment to the next, one company to the next. And it was, you know, virtually impossible. You know, uh, first thing, you know, know, we went and break things down into categories. So we just wanted to know, you know, environmental sustainability of our companies. And so we would go and, you know, investigate company by company. And we would come up with basically, you know, these these, these glossy reports that some companies would have and compare it to another one, and the information be completely different, completely inconsistent, and there was just, you know, really nowhere to turn to. So we went and hired one of the main ESG rating companies. We figured, okay, so that's a nice place to start. Let's get these guys to sort of, you know, spell things out for us and, you know, give us ratings and all that. And and that actually helped a fair bit, just in terms of categorizing, finding out what was important, finding out, you know, where to focus our, you know, where to focus our efforts, finding out what the topics were on environment on the environmental side, on the social side, on the government, on the governance side that, you know, that they found important. But even within that, we found that there were lots of holes in terms of, we were dealing with sort of with sustainability experts, but these guys didn't know a lot about companies that they were actually following. So, you know, in order to sort of marry our expertise to theirs, we really had to go back company by company and start from scratch on our entire portfolio of, you know, maybe maybe a hundred 100 holdings and and really start from scratch and find all of the, thought, all, all the things that we thought would be relevant. From an ESG perspective and this was a massive undertaking and you know I probably went from spending you know I guess zero percent of my time on ESG to maybe 50-60 percent of my time on ESG for the last two years that I was working in the field and like I said what we found was just this wild west of data where you know things weren't comparable it was really hard to figure out what the what the main topics were and you know when i when I eventually left that world and I decided to sort of step back and figure out what, what you know what my next steps would be, I, I figured, okay, so let me look back you know at what I'd been doing. And you know, as my job as an investment as an investment analyst, you know, what were my biggest pain points? And by far, the one that jumped out at me the most is what I'm talking about right now is is about trying to figure out, trying to make heads of the tails of the ESG world. And I thought, you know, what would have been great to have if, you know, when I was in that world and I thought, you know, what would be really amazing to have would be a source of information that like a new source of it, a new source that really told me a lot about what's going on in the world of ESG in terms of, you know, take a very broad look. What are companies doing in terms like, you know, on the environment side, on the social side, where is it the capital is flowing? Because that, you, that's, that's going to tell you a lot, a lot more than the data that they're putting out. We know where the actual capital is going is going to tell you a lot about you know where you know where where they're focusing their efforts what are the issues in terms of reporting because like i said reporting was just a mess and was there anything you know are there any initiatives that are happening in terms of making some kind of some kind of order out of this some kind of standardization that'll help on the esg side and i thought you know coming up with you know a central source for all these types of stories for capital flows for what's happening on the environmental side, for you know, like the, the one thing that, came, that that kept coming up, that kept coming up over and over again, which is obvious because there's so much capital going towards it, is the energy transition side. You know, lots of money, tons of money going into renewable energy. So where is it going? Who's spending it? You know, you know, it's the, the kind of things you you'd really want to know as an investor. Something that really started to evolve, I think, even more since I started it, was the world of sustainable finance with all these new instruments that you know are fascinating for investors that are popping up. So, you know, so what, you know, what are they, who's issuing them, how much, you know, how much is going on, how is it evolving? So coming up with, you know, sort of a central source for an investor to come to and look at and say, okay, what is happening in the ESG world? What are the things that I should be focusing on? Where is capital flowing? So I kind of want to felt that, you know, I wanted to be the thing that I was lacking, right? I wanted to fill that void. So that's what, that's what I formed ESG today to do.
1: Mark, love that background story. And there's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack because you 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 made I, you can't believe how many notes I just took during, during that little conversation <laughs> right there. But I do want to circle back and talk a little bit more about ESG today and, and make sure people understand it. So you're more than curating news articles, right? We've, we've got more than that going on. But talk a little bit about your model. I mean, as a subscriber model, it sounds like the main demographic is the investor community, but I'm sure others would find high value in, in following ESG today. Just so I wanted to understand a little bit more about... You know, if somebody goes to ESG today, what what are they seeing? What, what what value are they pulling out of that? And and who is from a subscription standpoint? Kind of who who are your main subscribers at this point?
3: Yeah, so it's not, it's not a subscriber model. I mean, at the moment it's, it's it's advertising driven. I toyed with subscriber, but I felt like sort of wanted to get the broadest audience that I could. And I do speak, I think, primarily to investors, just because I am an investor and that is my voice. Although I assumed, and I you know I can see that I that I was right that you know the next level of people reading would be, you know, like issuers because, you know, I mean, they have to compare themselves to others. They want to know what's going on in the world, just like the investors do. I mean, in a a way, they're the biggest investors in their own businesses too. So, you know, we're all investors in, in some sense. And, you know, the value that I would like investors and issuers to get is just some kind of clarity and understanding on what is happening in the ESG world of business and investing. Really, you know, what are companies doing. You know, companies often put out sustainability goals. So, you know, what are those goals? How are they pursuing them? Do people care? Do they not? What are they getting credit for? Most of the time, I find that, you know, anytime any company puts out anything like that, they get applauded. Every once in a while, and I think investors are getting more savvy, a company will put out something that, you know, that sounds really amazing, and they'll actually get Pushback and say and 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 say, oh, you know what? Okay, fine. You're going to be you know, you say you're going to be you know carbon neutral by 2050, but your 2030 goals are terrible, and you're doing this and you know you know and and you're not sustainable on this front and this front. I mean, investors are getting more savvy, and I think you know if you didn't have a resource like this, you wouldn't really know that. And comp- you know, from a company perspective, I think it's really handy to know who you know you, you know what kind of things what kind of initiatives are actually getting applauded what kind of initiatives are adding value what aren't and from an investor perspective for sure you would like to know a what companies are doing b what your what, what you know what your peers are doing what, you know what kind of funds they're doing where their fund flows are going and, you know is ESG actually you know you hear about it a lot but are, are are funds actually flowing there you know i i put out an article today that that mentioned that in europe i mean for for 2020 ESG ETFs accounted for more than half of the entire inflows for the whole industry for the year, which is just amazing. So, you know, I think as an investor, I I would I would really want to know that: is it just talk, or is money actually going there? And so, that's the kind of value that I want to add.
1: You said something earlier that is one of the things I wrote down. You know, from your investment manager perspective, y'all's pivot into the ESG space. It wasn't some, you know revelation that you guys necessarily had, but it was quote, very client driven. And I think for many in the oil and gas industry, you know, I wrote about this extensively a little over a year ago and I said, no, the ESG wave is coming. And I think many, you know, may have shrugged their shoulders in reaction to that, but you're right. It's very client driven where, whether it's clients of, you know, investment funds, whether it's limited partners inside of a private equity fund, you know they are driving these decisions in an ESG direction. The tidal wave has come because of that. I think a lot of people focus on you know politics and you know, what is what is Biden going to do versus Trump and those kind of things and I always tell people you know what has happened over the last 2 to 3 years has happened regardless of Trump. It is a private ordering, it is a revelation inside the investment community that there are, are trillions of dollars that want to be driven towards ESG and so knowing and understanding what's going on, what's working and not working, I think is key. And I I love that ESG today is doing that. One thing I wanted to follow up with you on and and get your thoughts on a little bit more, because I I think this is this is where we're going to be headed in the next two to four years. And you know, you guys were struggling when in your old job, you guys were struggling on the comparability. You're like, how do I take these glossy reports with pictures of all these wonderful, as Sean likes to say, unicorns and rainbows and everything is perfect and okay. But (laughs) how do, how do we quantify that? How do I put that in my spreadsheet and make investment decisions off of it? I think we are heading towards some synthesis around reporting frameworks and eventually we'll find ourselves, especially for large caps, eventually find ourselves in a situation where just like you're reporting on revenue and earnings and everything else, you're going to see very specific KPIs or key performance indicators around the ESG universe. So just as you're on the front lines and sharing these kind of stories and helping the investment community and ultimately the issuer community, I think as well, stay abreast of all these issues. wanted just to get your thoughts and pick your brain about around reporting and where you think we're headed with ESG reporting, what it's going to look like, what it would be from a comparability standpoint and just pick your brain on that.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, that is the golden goose right like the reporting and quantification side right i think that one day and i'm not gonna be uh, bold enough to put that, put a target on that i think one day esg reporting will be part and parcel of company reporting in general you know i think just like we report our revenues and earnings i think we're going to be reporting esg factors as well and you know and and i think that's a tide that that, that that's not going to turn i think you know that's just the way we're heading there's a long road to get between here and there. You know, I mean, the thing that I hear over and over again, and not just in my, you know, not just in my own experience, but it's, you know, sort of validating to hear other people's, the other people here, but I hear over and over again that, boy, I'm interested in ESG investing. This is from, you know, from an investment man perspective, but I just don't have the data. But, you know, the, you know what I like to do is I, I, I like to go read 10 Ks, 10 Qs and get data out of there. And I just can't do that on ESG. And so therefore, I just, you know, it, it's just not, it's just not an option for me. So I can't, I, I can't do that. And I think the world's definitely changing and definitely is is going to those holes are going to be filled. You know, you have initiatives and organizations that have taken upon themselves to You know, basically to fill that void, you have organizations like SASB, like TCFD, who are, you know, who are trying to develop standards for either specifically for climate or or for sustainability in general, and actually have proper reporting frameworks that create consistency and create standards. So you can actually look at companies across industries, across regions. You have, you know, a recent initiative started by IFRS, who are basically the guys who are behind financial reporting, they now wanna they, they now wanna be the guys who who create like the standards from a sustainability perspective. So, you know, like, like I said, you're gonna if, if you're gonna see the world of sustainability reporting evolving to basically join the world of financial reporting, I think that's a big way that's gonna happen is the guys who are in charge of financial reporting and are, are are gonna take it over. And I think it's going to be a shock, I think for companies who have to report this stuff, it's going to be really hard, not just because they may may or may not have sustainable businesses, but I think the actual ability to go and collect a whole bunch of data that that they haven't done beforehand, that's going to be a big job. I mean, just think, you know, like 10 years ago, like what it was like for the financial institutions after the after the crisis when they suddenly had to you know, hire thousands and thousands of, of engineers and data collectors to be able to keep up with the compliance. I think you're going to see that and it's going to be much broader and it's going to be over a broader topic over, you know, over, over basically every company, you know, I mean, recently. The UK announced that all reporting companies in a few years are going to have to follow TCFD reporting. I mean, telling you, that is going to be a shock to these companies that have never had to do that kind of thing. And, you know, that sort of opens a whole, you know, really interesting topic. And I don't want to segue too much, but that sort of opens a lot of opportunities for data providers. Because, you know, I mean, the way you collect all this stuff, and I think the way, you know, I mean, I think the way it's going to happen is it's going to be a lot of AI driven applications a lot of companies who are basically really good at data miners who are good at finding things and i think it's going to create a lot of opportunity and you see these guys kind of popping up but they're sort of small now and i think there's going to be lots of consolidation between you know data companies reporting companies you're seeing you're seeing a lot of consolidation already in the guys who, who put together the standards i mean the uh, sasb and IIRC just announced that they're getting together which is going to you know in an effort to create an integrated reporting world, which I think is just going to be fascinating. We'll have to see where it goes, because now you're going to have these evolving sort of competing standards. And they say they work together, but at some point, someone's going to have to take responsibility between, you know, SASB, between IFRS. So at the risk of going on way too long on that topic, I think, you know, this is going to be one of the major, major topics over the next couple of years for investors and for sure for companies who are going to find themselves, you know, facing just, a monumental task, and you know, there's going to be lots of money to be made for for you know for providers, and a lot of pain, I think, for a lot of companies. So, in that
2: vein, one of the things that's interesting, Mark, is I'm currently attending a ESG credentialing class at the University of Houston in their Energy Department. Part of our advisory board is made up of different people from through, throughout some well-known companies in the in the oil and gas business. But this particular subject came up recently one of our classes around. As I'm reading, as I'm hearing you, they see this as a forward-looking idea of combining the financial reporting with the sustainability reporting into one overall report. And I think that's what you alluded to. And so I think that's a huge takeaway that that's going to now require those two worlds to combine and be part of the, a single, single step forward in terms of representing a company in all different fashions. In that vein, though, I wanted to ask you, one of the topics that came around that was, where does that fit inside the operational aspect of a company? And the argument was made at least as an initial discussion point to put it all underneath the financial side. So in terms of reporting like if you're part if you're the ESG you know expert reporting expert or so such and such that you you would be functionally underneath the finance side and that made sense to a lot of people. One of the only reservations was so does that now make it all fiscally based and then can that take away some of the aspects of ESG that kind of go beyond money? in terms of that. And so maybe could you talk about, you know, you've had some experience you know bringing ESG into a company from an initial standpoint. Can you maybe talk about those areas a little bit and how you might think it might work from a reporting or operational side for a business?
3: Well, that's a fascinating idea. You know, look to me, like I you said, you're, you know, you're speaking to, you know, an investor at heart and the idea of quantifying everything is just so tempting for me. I love it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I love the idea that you can put numbers behind something, and I love the idea that you can put everything in a spreadsheet. But you know, look, look. I mean, even financial reporting is not strictly quantitative. I mean, you you look at a at an SEC filing, you look at a 10K and a 10Q, and there's a lot more, you know, words and you know words and sentences in there than than, than there are numbers. So I think it all goes hand in hand. I think, you know, you're just going to have, instead of a 100 page 10K, you're going to have a 200 page 10K and a lot of it's going to be numbers, but you're going to have to put tons and tons of disclosure on things that go beyond numbers. You know, some things are very easy to quantify, you know, you, you know, what are your emissions? How many tons of waste are you putting to to landfills? You know, what percent of your energy comes from renewables? You know, some things are very easy to quantify. And some things I think just will always be on the on the, on the more qualitative side. And it's an interesting thing where you, where you actually look at where investors are focusing their efforts. And, you know, I think you're sort of seeing the early stages of where things will evolve, whereas, you know, BlackRock, for example, you know, with their with their landmark letter last year from Larry Fink saying, okay, sustainability is here and you know if we're here to stay. And that said, they they clearly focus very much on the climate side. And, and you know, and that is really stuff that you can quantify a lot of. Like I said, you know, G, you know, GHG emissions and tons of emissions and you know percents of renewables and all that. Whereas other investors, you know, State, State Street has sort of decided they're going to be the diversity guys, and that stuff's a lot more, you know, you can say, okay, so what percent of our of, of our staff comes from 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 this background or from from LGBTQ or or, or from different you know racial backgrounds? But I think that you know that by nature that is just a much more qualitative thing. You know, you know what what measures are we putting in place? What sort of uh, you know? And these are all things you're going to have to disclose. You know, what are the practices that we follow? It's it's going to be a lot more than, than, than just than just quantitative. But the truth is, I think financial reporting is already much more than just quantitative anyways.
1: I think that's right. I think the scariest and saddest thing that I've heard so far today is that all 10Ks are going to go from 100 pages to 200 <laughs> pages, as I read way too many of them. But I do think to Sean's point, when you think about the natural place for this function to reside and, and those who already have the skill set in pulling together data putting it inside of a 10k or whatever disclosure document and then presenting it to the world that is you know that is that accounting side that is the financial reporting side of the company so i think that makes the most sense but you're spot on when you do read that 10k whether you're in the management discussion and analysis section, whether you're in risk factors, where, you know there is a lot of text, right? Explaining, you know, what we're doing from a risk management standpoint, what we think the future looks like, what what is, you know, what does the outlook of the company look like, taking into account everything that we've extracted from those spreadsheets. But yeah, fascinating conversation. I think this was great. I would strongly encourage you, whether you're an investor on the private equity side and in the public company side, to navigate over to ESG today and check them out. I follow them on LinkedIn and i do read their stuff on a daily basis so it's amazing mark thanks for sharing with us today
3: all right thank you thanks so much for, so much for having me on
2: you're you're welcome and with that so that'll do it for the talking point segment stay tuned for the quick break and after that will be our case study
1: hey sean a quick note about our sponsor hewlett-packard enterprise through hpe's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition cloud-based consumption advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out
2: more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT, or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Today, Eric, you know, one of the things we always deal with in the business world, and it's always one of those hurdles, if you will, is, is when, it, when a business decides to change, a business decides to pivot, especially if it's against the core value aspect of what they're doing. It's always, no matter what industry I think is out there, it's always a tough, tough moment in a company's history to decide what to do and how to do that.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at management teams and, and boards of directors and leadership, and, and you see the talent and the vision to be able to make a pivot, and that's always something you want to keep an eye on. It's always impressive.
2: Definitely. So today we have Terrapin, which is a company out of Canada. It's a geothermal company. But by default, the way, the way we linked it into the oil and gas podcast is they do do some work in the natural gas world. And we just felt, after talking to Gray Alton about just what Terrapin is doing as a company, that there were some really awesome aspects to, their, to a pivot story that they had around this combination, Eric, of going from an unconventional to a conventional geothermal company pivoted around an abandoned well project. And so we're going to dive into that with him. And so before we do that, let's talk a little about Gray. So he was born and still resides in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. As we mentioned, he currently is the vice president of project development for Terrapin. He was part of their founding shareholder group as well. So he's been there since the beginning of that. He's got 16 years in the industrial construction veteran side of things with a focus on oil and gas and a graduate of the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology and Construction Engineering. And when he isn't trying to do everything he can to help the clean tech industry, you can find him on a golf course or like most typical Canadians, he still loves hockey. So they all be thumped and all the rest of that good stuff and the flames and the hockey night in Canada. So with all that, great. Thank you so much for coming on and taking some time to talk to us about Terrapin.
4: Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, gents. So let's
2: kind of start to so kind of help us lay out the, what was the origin story, the, the problem, the chasm, the vacuum that was created out there that the turbine recognizes as part of the initial part of this opportunity?
4: Yeah. As you know, Alberta and Texas, you know, there's a lot of similarities in the oil and gas industry. You know, you look at a map of Alberta, specifically around the amount of wells that have been drilled. It looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. You know, we've got it very active I and mean, we've had a very active oil and gas industry for a number of years, for decades, but we were starting to see that a lot of the wells that Were drilled, were either underperforming or just not performing and producing hydrocarbons whatsoever but they still were producing heat. And, you know, if it's coming from the earth, if it's heat come from the earth, that's generally what we call geothermal heat. And so there were three original founders of Terrapin that formed the company. They raised a seed ground, which I was a part of, and we purchased a Stirling engine concept from a doctorate at the University of Alberta. And the intention was to develop and patent a Stirling engine, which is a low heat temperature power generation unit that could be retrofitted onto these abandoned wells to produce small, small scale distributed power generation. And the intention was, you know, we could sell these units to these well owners, they could they could be retrofitted onto the wells, they can generate power, sell that power to the grid. Once they had enough money in the bank account, they could invest that into remediating that well site. And then you could basically pull that sterling engine off the well site and move it to the next well and make it productive again. And so, you know, along with the university, and we had been hired to consult on some geothermal studies in the areas of Grand Prairie and in northern Alberta and the municipal district of Greenview which surrounds the city of Grand Prairie. And so we were working with the city to look at abandoned wells for use for geothermal direct heat use and res- in residential applications and also to explore the use for that small scale distributed power generation with our Stirling engine.
2: So it sounds like a great opportunity. So, as you did that and you stepped into it, what were some of the problems? Uh, give us one that you expected to come across, and maybe one that you didn't, in terms of that process. Yeah,
4: you know, when you're developing a technology, you absolutely absolutely expect some some commercialization hurdles. And we we definitely, you know, when you're purchasing a concept that lives on a piece of paper with a doctorate and trying to develop that into a working prototype, we knew there was going to be some hurdles. And so we got a small scale prototype of the Stirling engine working really early. But the next phase was stepping it up to be able to support utility scale power generation. And that's where we really started to come up against some issues of like the size of the engine that was going to be required and the cost that we were going to have to invest to get the technology from that small prototype to the next phase of a commercial sized engine was going to be quite large, actually.
2: So with that, so you go through that, you go through these, you, you kind of step through these issues. So kind of give us an idea of where all this took took the company and, and what was the result of those actions?
4: Yeah, so... You know, we quickly realized that we had kind of a big expensive valley of death to cross with developing that technology. You know, the capital that we originally raised wasn't going to get us there to a commercialized engine. But another piece that we didn't really see coming was the liabilities of these wells that we had to deal with. When we started looking at the sterling engine technology and developing it, you know, oil and gas industry took a big hit. And so a lot of well owners started abandoning these sites And the government was basically telling us, you can still pursue these well sites, but you have to now take on the liability of these assets. And, you know, when you don't know what the subsurface conditions are, you know, some of those wells have been in place since the 50s, you know, that that really started to create a bit of an issue for us. And, you know, where there's risk, there's money that needs to be invested, and we just didn't have the dollars to do that. And so, you know, we re- we quickly realized that we had a big expensive valley of death across, but we had a strong team built, a geothermal team. And so we started to see the energy transition conversation starting to really take steam. And so the idea for conventional geothermal came from when we were actually looking at the wells and this big valley of death. You know, sterling is, is really great for small distributed generation assets with, with lower heat resources, but we really wanted to know... Can commercial scale geothermal work in Alberta? And so we shifted our investigation of abandoned wells to more of a direct heat use opportunity and started focusing on exploring conventional geothermal use for power generation.
2: Hmm. So I would say a big pivot. I would say a big, big element in terms of the, the opportunity and things of that nature. So tell us a little bit about once you went through all those problems and you kind of figured out, okay, this is a, a real chance to, to do something a little bit different, but obviously with an opportunity, tell us kind of what happened after y'all took those steps. And now that you're into this different path.
4: Yeah. So we, we started consulting more in the space. We started to get a lot more traction here in Alberta. And the federal Canadian government came out through Natural Resources Canada. They issued three grants, one for Alberta, one for British Columbia, and one for Saskatchewan through Natural Resources Canada's Emerging Renewable Portfolio Program, where they were funding conventional geothermal projects. And it was a portfolio of a number of different types of projects, offshore wind, some run of river hydro. But we were able to secure 25 and a half million Canadian and non-dilutive federal funding for a conventional geothermal project. Here in the province, and so that really kicked off the project in northern Alberta that we situated because of the consulting that we had been doing in the region and the great understanding that we had as well in the region.
2: So I think there's definitely some some environmental environmental impacts you could probably talk about, maybe even some social. But I think the part that I, I find most interesting and what I'd love to for you to dive in on a little bit. You know, governance is one of those those letters in the ESG narrative that doesn't get a lot of love, doesn't get a lot of attention, and it's kind of hard to define sometimes, and the easy one is, you know, corporate compensation and stuff like that. But there's a responsibility aspect of the G side that that businesses and leadership have to take on, which is really kind of at the cornerstone of any kind of transition and evolution, whether it's around something like this or even just basic business strategies. So can you tell us a little bit about about what it was like on the shareholder side, the executive side, and the decision-making side as far as that transition and how that played out?
4: Yeah, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a seamless transition by any means, you know, there was an investor group that invested into a company that was specifically supposed to be developing a technology. And that technology was not what was going to be used for this geothermal project. So the initial stages really consisted of kind of just and also because geothermal had never really been pursued in the province, there wasn't really a great understanding of it. The first step was to really just make the shareholders comfortable with the concept of what geothermal was and, and what the types of projects we were going to be looking at are and how how closely it relates to industries that we know very well, obviously oil and gas, you know, drilling in oil and gas, drilling in geothermal are, are very similar concepts. And so the first steps were, were essentially just what's the value prop of this pivot? What are the risks of staying on the current track that we're on? And the, obviously, the largest risk was losing everybody's money in that valley of death. And what are the benefits of the pivot? And, and ultimately, the benefits of the pivot just outweighed that staying on the current track.
1: Gray, I want to I spend a little bit of time. One, I love this story. We got G for geothermal. We got G for governance. <laughs> and we got G for Gray all here to there help us talk about this. Take a couple of minutes... I love the backstory. I love this idea that we were pursuing this tech to do something really cool, taking underperforming wells and and try to draw power from them just from the heat that they have. But now we're doing conventional geothermal. That's where Terrapin is. Just take a couple of minutes and give us kind of a geothermal 101. Kind of explain, you know, what's going on with the Alberta number one project and kind of where it's headed.
4: Yeah, so I mean, conventional geothermal. So you, when just contrasting geothermal, you know, you might hear geo exchange and then ge- conventional geothermal. Geo exchange is basically using the earth as a battery. You're going a couple hundred feet down with a very slim hole well, and you know, you're you're basically storing storing your heat in the summer and, and the cold air in the winter. And then where conventional geothermal is where we're going, you know, miles into the earth in some cases. Obviously, it depends what jurisdiction you're in, places that are more volcanic formed, have higher geothermal deposits where in Alberta here, we're going to be drilling about four and a half kilometres to get to our geothermal resource, which is considerable distance. You know, a lot of oil and gas starts topping out, you know, deep wells are three kilometres. And so the conventional geothermal project will be, yeah, four and a half kilometres to get to the resource. We're going to be producing about eight megawatts of power from the facility, but the parasitic loads will eat up about three megawatts. We'll be net exporting five megawatts. And that's a baseline renewable, clean power. We are, you know, we haven't drilled our exploration wells yet. So we are expecting to even be able to step up our flow rates. And if we do get the flow rates that we're projecting, we might even be able to expand the project up into the 10 megawatt range. So behind the power generation facility, there's also a district heat network. So in talking about geothermal heat, you you talk about it in a hierarchy, that really high grade heat you want to convert to power. That lower grade heat still has a lot of value and you can use that to move it away from the geothermal facility. So we can pipe uh, heat as direct heat up to five miles away from its original source, where it can be used to offset natural gas use for heating. So, you know, if you need to fire natural gas for a kiln or a drying or, you know, space heating, we can provide direct baseload heat as well to those facilities.
2: So to switch gears just a tad, Gray, I'm kind of curious, could you give a little bit of perspective as well around? You have some oil and gas experience, you know what that industry is like, geothermal, a lot of similarities, but obviously different. So kind of tell us what you learned about this transition from a personal standpoint, if anything stood out to you professionally, it was kind of one of those big lessons around kind of this migration in terms of understanding of how you could utilize strategies and technologies relative to the company.
4: Yeah, I mean I think the biggest one that stood out to me was there was always a I think a fear that, you know, the renewable industry and the oil and gas industries are kinda, kind of opposed to each other and there there isn't always a synergy, you know. And I think I really learned through this process in developing a geothermal project in that there's a lot of a ton of transferable skills between traditional oil and gas and geothermal. And so for me it's about putting some of the harder hit industries back to work and repurposing some of those jobs that can be seen as supporting the industry instead of kind of standing against it and fighting against it.
1: I love that aspect of it. You know, one of the things we've been talking a lot about during COVID and over the last, really over the last year is, especially in oilfield services, is just the, the job loss that's that's gone on. And so this idea of reskilling a workforce or finding people in all honesty that really know how to drill holes really well. And if, you know, they're not tapping hydrocarbons but maybe they're tapping heat and bringing that up I mean Greg, just to ask the question when you think about the workforce that's working with you guys on the geothermal project at Alberta number one I mean are you seeing a lot of that translation are you see are are, we, are you tapping into some of those traditional oil and gas resources you guys develop out that project
4: hundred percent yeah you know like the drilling partners that we're working with where they don't even have to adjust the rigs, you know, the bore size of the holes, you know, traditional and gas are in you know, the smaller, you know, under seven inch range, you know, we're looking close to 14 inch size wells. And so, you know, the size is different, but at the end of the day, all those skills are directly transferable, you know, from the drillers and the subsurface folk right to the, the surface facility folk too, you know, the power facility is a, Typical power generation facility, you know, pressure vessels, piping, you're putting pipe fitters, welders, electricians back to work. These district heat networks are piping and fluids and heat exchangers and the oil and gas industry. I mean, that's, that's their, been their business for decades. And so, yeah, there's a, a major transition even through to like the regulator side in the environment. You know, there's again, you're looking at oil and gas regulations. There's a lot of that are going to be transferable into the the geothermal industry as well.
1: You know, this is really our first episode about geothermal mm-hmm. and love the project and love the pivot. want to talk a little bit about, Gray, where you and Terrapin and kind of where the everyone in Alberta thinks, you know, Alberta, number one, how does that fit into that overall energy source kind of spectrum from you all When you're talking about natural gas or you're talking about, nuclear or anything else, how does that, you know, you guys are targeting net five megawatts right now, but how does that fit into the over, overall power generation in Alberta? And how's that going to play out?
4: Yeah, you know, in terms of the power generation potential, it's obviously small in terms of how much power is going to the grid. And, you know, we really do put a lot of value into the power that's generated from these projects. But I think one thing that, especially Terrapin and, and some of the geothermal industry in Canada specifically, is putting a lot of value into these types of projects is really around the heat side of these. You know, geothermal is is a rare opportunity to produce a baseload renewable emission-free heat source. And so, you know, there's jurisdictions, you know, in Texas you, you don't need to heat your homes nearly as much as I do. You know, today it's about minus 11 Fahrenheit with the wind chill here in Alberta. So it's a significantly cold day. And so we have to fire a lot of gas for heating. And so the opportunity to produce heat from either abandoned wells or newly drilled conventional geothermal wells, I think is going to play a large role, especially in places like Canada and the northern climates that have to fire a lot of gas for heat. I think we can do a really great job of starting to offset a lot of natural gas usage with our projects. And yes, again, the power is very valuable, but you know, I think you're seeing the wind and solar industries are able to produce power at a pretty competitive rate. And so we really put a lot of importance kind of in the heat side of the projects.
1: Yeah, I think Sean and I would say that down here in Houston, we don't see a lot of negative 11.
2: No, we did, we did. It was 32 today though. I was very proud. I'm jealous. It's very, very <laughs> <cold>. It does. For <laughs> us it is. So I want to ask a little bit about the finance side. We've seen this you know, public surge and obviously not just public, but it's actually happening. But we're seeing a lot of publicity around you know, investment groups are, are pushing ESG narratives and pushing for clean slash renewable energy and mega dollars going into you know, massive amounts of money going into that right now. And I think we'll continue. Are you, are you seeing that at the Terrapin level? or is there, Are you getting more true investors and in, in, in that kind of stuff in terms of this type of technology?
4: Yeah, it's actually been pretty overwhelming, you know, when when you go out there and you announce capital raise, the amount of positive feedback we've been getting, the amount of interest that we've been getting from traditional funds, family funds, private oil and gas companies, you know, drilling companies, you know, it's pretty amazing to see even governments stepping up to see how they can support, you know, I think you're seeing it. These are these are long term. The really nice thing about these these projects is, you know, there's geothermal wells that are still producing from, you know, the 40s and 50s. And so people see these as a very long term baseload power producing project. And, you know, we've also our projects produce a lot of carbon offsets as well. You know, Alberta, number one will produce about 100,000 tons of CO2 offsets per year. And so, you know, investors, you're seeing utilities are changing. They're making their carbon neutral mandates. Even investing arms are, are making mandates into that they won't invest into solar certain companies or funds, unless they've got a renewable focus now. And so, yeah, it's more opportunities for people to put money into long-term projects that are, yeah, helping with the energy transition and, and reducing our overall carbon intensity.
2: So this is a quick question to that. Are you seeing, and I don't know if you have transparency on this, is that, is that surge in terms of the economic return? I mean, is there, I mean, obviously there's an expectation for doing well by the environment and stuff of that nature around carbon emissions but could you talk a little bit about as, as much as you can maybe kind of the financial incentives and if those if those are parallel and mirror like previous investments and maybe weren't as quite as attuned to the ESG narrative
4: yeah you know i mean the one thing about these projects and you know when you start talking returns is where are you getting your money from like what are you producing you know what's the integration how much does it cost you to get to your resource there's a lot of factors that really drive those returns and so Anchoring into specific numbers is really hard sometimes, but you know, like the Alberta number one project itself is, you know, in a double digit IRR. You know, we're projecting. We run twenty five year economic models for our facilities. You know, getting into the specifics of returns probably might this might not be the arena to do it, <laughs> unfortunately. But they're healthy they are healthy returns. Again, not because of just the power, but the heat, the thermal value of these projects. You know, for every one megawatt, a rough number is about every one megawatt of power that you generate, there's about eight times the thermal load available for direct heat use. And those direct that direct heat is what really drives the economics of these projects unless you're in a place like New Zealand where you've got, you know, 400 meters to get to your geothermal resource at, you know, 1400 Celsius and you're using a, a steam generation facility, you know, when you're talking 120 degrees Celsius heat, you're not generating those large power numbers. And so capitalizing on the heat is really important to drive the economics of these projects.
2: So maybe if you could touch on that a little bit about the geography. I mean, I know one of the, I don't want to say limits, but one of the, I guess it is a limit is about the geography around geothermal, but can you talk about how this plays out, this type of model? Is there any restrictions around taking this to someplace else within the geothermal world in terms of applications?
4: Yeah, you know, it all comes down to what your subsurface conditions are. So I kind of mentioned in Canada, you know, in northern Alberta, or I'll, I'll focus mostly on Alberta for this answer, I guess, but, you know, in the north, there's a lot of really good geothermal potential. And in the South, it's, it you know, it's it's basically non-existent. And as, as you kind of, so it really comes down to the depth that t- it takes to get to your resource, what the temperature of that resource is and what the flow rate is. Because those are kind of the, the key drivers that will tell you whether you're going to have an economic project or not. You know, if you can, if it only takes... 500 meters to get to your resource, but you're only tapping 60 degree Celsius heat. You know, you're you might not have a great project, but you know, if you're going 400 degrees at 14 or 400 meters at you know 1400 degrees, that really changes the economics of the project. And so, hmm. the devil's always in the details with these projects. At the end of the day, sure. And
2: so, I want to ask you one last thing about this, terms of, to make sure I got this right in terms of what you're saying. It seems to me like that, I guess, the economic. Viability and even the performance of viability around geothermal is is that consistent? You know, it's not like a traditional, a conventional or unconventional oil reservoir where you have your your hockey stick going one way or the other somehow, right? It's there's a point where it all kind of goes dissipates. But it seems to me like the long there's a really long term steady generation of, of power that for, from the geothermal side. Is that,
4: is that pretty accurate? Yeah, you nailed it. We call it baseload generation and a baseload heat and baseload power. So, you know, the geothermal, geothermal is producing 24-7, 365. The only time it's going down is when you're, you know, doing your maintenance on the facility. So it's very reliable and, and that's where we talk about, you know, we can support wind and solar with our geothermal projects because they peak in valley and we have such a consistent supply, you know, we can follow on and fill in those times when you start to lose other renewables on your grid as well.
2: Interesting. Well, buddy, I tell you what, I think that's a good little chunk for us to take and process. And we definitely appreciate the time. And it's amazing to see what y'all are doing up there.
4: Yeah, no, thanks for giving me the platform to talk about Terrapin. And I really appreciate it. No yeah, problem. Yeah, thanks,
2: Greg. So stay tuned in between. After the break, we're going to get a little inside segment coming from Patrick Hansen. Patrick is the founder and principal of GeoEnergy Marketing. And he's got a little oil and gas background as well as a lot of geothermal. So stay
1: tuned and we'll be right back. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsored Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more?
2: It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the inside segment of the podcast. We just got done listening to Greg Alton over at Terrapin Energy and this really amazing pivot story, I think, Eric, around, you know, recognizing an opportunity relative to, you know, some core aspects of what they did before, but also having this forward thinking, look into what else can we tap into from a business standpoint. And because I know that's got to be, as I said before, it, it's a tough thing for businesses to do when they see this, you know, traditional way they've done something and it really have to change and step into something that they're not familiar with
1: yeah it takes it takes real leadership to pivot like that and and one of the things i really liked about that story is leadership pivoted into some conventional geothermal but Part of the story of conventional geothermal is that allows traditional oil and gas to pivot into geothermal as well, whether it's oilfield services or whatever, drillers, whatnot. So I think that's all kind of cool connectivity around that.
2: Yeah. And so I think from an inside segment standpoint, I was very fortunate that I actually had a personal friend that I knew would be great for this in terms of doing this. And so I reached out to Patrick Hansen. And he's the founder and principal at Geo Energy Marketing. He's got 15 years of marketing, brand management, communications, and strategic sales enablement experience in the geothermal industry. Patrick has spent his entire career helping energy services companies define their brand within the energy sector while positioning the promoting, and promoting geothermal at every opportunity. In doing so, Patrick has worked with dozens of energy service companies to implement proven strategic marketing initiatives. In addition, Patrick's been a part of developing sales tools that leverage marketing initiatives to position companies for success. Prior to starting GeoEnergy Marketing, Patrick was the Director of Sales and Marketing for TNG Energy Services in Bakersfield, California, and the Global Marketing Manager for Scientific Drilling International in Houston, Texas. He earned a bachelor's in international business management with a focus on marketing, as well as a master's in global strategic management at Dominican University of California. And I'm also proud to call him a good friend of mine as well. So I thought he would be great for this. And he took the time to come on and talk to us about it. And so with that, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on and being part of the Insight segment.
5: My pleasure, guys. Thank you. So I think kind of the place I'd love to start
2: with your scientific drilling background, which is where you and I met on the, in the oil field side, you've actually personally, you know, walked a long time and spent some time on both wearing kind of both the oil and gas and the geothermal boots, if you will. So can out there for the listenership, when we talk about these kind of transitions and, oh, it's easy to come on over and, and work for, for us, we're just like your old, your old industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what that transition is like and what it, what it means to change those hats, if you will?
5: yeah i mean it's interesting concept right because one of the things Gray mentioned earlier was there's a like a misconception that the renewable energy industry is in direct opposition to to oil and gas or fossil fuels and there's a segment of of both parties that probably see that as an opposition but really there's just huge huge opportunity one of the reasons why i was hired on and brought on over at scientific drilling was they recognized an opportunity to further exploit and grow their market share within the geothermal space worldwide basically because of the transferable technology and skill sets within their existing directional drillers and production loggers and and what have you and their technology the geothermal industry unlike solar and wind requires you know very skilled engineers to operate drilling rigs that look very very similar to oil and gas drilling rigs and all the downhill technology is is similar down to the temperature ratings, right? And Ray was mentioning the different size of holes and the type of rock you're drilling into or really some of the only differences. And so when you look at the, dare I say, downturn or stagnation of the industry, oil and gas industry this year, there was a bunch of people out of work, a bunch of highly qualified people that were, in their words, tired of the roller coaster of being laid off every seven to 10 years or even shorter intervals of the oil and gas industry kind of hitting those peaks and valleys. I remember several conversations back in March and April where they were saying, how can I get into renewables? We recognize renewables as a more steady future, dare I say. And I said, it's really easy. I mean, granted the industry is smaller, the geothermal Space is smaller than oil and gas comparatively, but the skill sets are, are are very much aligned. And Sean, you were using the word pivot a lot in in your earlier conversation with with Gray, and I thought you were doing that on purpose because there was a major, hugely successful virtual conference this summer called Pivot Twenty Twenty, hosted by the Geothermal Entrepreneurial Organization out of the University of Texas Austin, led by. Jamie Beard and her team. And it drew thousands of people because it was geared towards that exact concept, pivoting from oil and gas and into geothermal and leveraging the incredible skill sets and knowledge transfer and and technology transfers that are available and they're stacked, so to speak, from a rig standpoint or people looking for work. And so it's very much a timely conversation given the the market directions both are going in. And I'm happy to provide more insight and in following up from what Gray was sharing regarding Terrapin.
1: When we talk about, Patrick, when we talk about reskilling the workforce and transferable technology and kind of some of the hope and opportunity that comes out of that, I think and to some degree, the geography matters, right? My assumption is that there's not a, a great geothermal future in the Permian necessarily but when we talk about the you know what boxes needed to be checked for a great geothermal project when you talk about the heat flow rates and whatnot you know australia versus canada versus the united states could you dive into a little bit about uh, into that tell us you know what makes for a great geothermal project where do those geothermal projects happen and and how can how can people in our industry the old traditional oil and gas industry and the old field services side you know where would they need to be where do they need to go to kind of you know tap into that opportunity?
5: Sure. That's a, that's a fantastic question. So in layman's terms, or if you take a, you know, a a bird's eye view where there is commercial geothermal power and the majority of the power plants producing clean baseload power to, to their respective regions. If you look at a heat flow map or a tectonic map or a seismic activity map, you'll find the Pacific ring of fire and major tectonic rift zones with, throughout the world and so basically if you draw a big circle around the east the western united states central south america and loop it around to new zealand indonesia the philippines japan and then all island nations which once upon a time were volcanic islands you find the lion's share of geothermal and then you have the major eastern african rift which goes all up through Kenya, Djibouti, Rwanda, et cetera. And then the birthplace of geothermal, which was in Latorello, Italy. And then the large or the fastest growing region in the world is Turkey. And those are all based on either volcanics or tectonic zones that bring the heat closer to the surface because everything boils down to no pun intended to the economics of obtaining the resource. There is geothermal, Potential every square inch of this planet if you drill deep enough. But geothermal has an incredible upfront capital intensive requirement to drill these wells to prove the resource to hit the pay zone, so to speak. And you want to find the cheapest, fastest way to get to that. And that's why geothermal is most prevalent in the Pacific Ring of Fire area and then island and tectonic regions. So that's where you have to be if you want to be in the action, so to speak. And some of the hot spots are Northern California and this area called the Geysers, which is to date the largest geothermal, active geothermal region in the world. And that's driven largely by Calpine Corporation. And then, saying in California, the Salton Sea area, which is, you know, Southern, Southern California, about 10 minutes north of Brawley. And that's where. Cal Energy Corporation, which is a Berkshire Hathaway company, and Energy Source, which operates Hudson Ranch Power Plant, have their major geothermal operations. And then it's peppered throughout western Nevada, which is led by Ormat Technologies. And there's pockets of geothermal developed and in development in the rest of Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Oregon, and there's potential everywhere within the western U.S., so, if we're talking to a a oil and gas industry, largely based in the North Americas, then the West is where you want to be, and then wherever else worldwide that I've already rattled off.
2: So, I want to say that so you and I have I told everybody we were we're personally friends, and I had a personal podcast way back that you actually came on and talked about. Through about three years ago, you came and talked about geothermal. And I remember you were very passionate about it, like you just are. You were very complimentary of the oil and gas industry. So this isn't something new in terms of the current market trend as far as like your your belief about the synergy between oil and gas and geothermal. But I wanted to ask you, you know, things are different now than they were, you know, three years ago around the oil and gas industry and just, you know, financing and marketing and all the rest of that stuff. And your world around the, as you go out and start talking about geothermal how have you seen it change over the course of the last year specifically relative to the pandemic and this this surgence of ESG narratives and ESG principles? How have you seen the market change and how are, how much are people willing, more willing now, I guess, to, to say, to have that conversation about this particular technology and energy source?
5: Well, that's a, a great point. And it is a timely time, as I mentioned, to have this this podcast, this conversation based on the respective markets we're talking about and the... Employment opportunities or the relative activity, rig rates, et cetera. I am reassured that i've I'm in the right industry at the right time. let's say that the attention, the momentum that geothermal is receiving worldwide and more specifically within the u s has never been higher. The mainstay companies that i that I mentioned previously, the ormats the Cal Energys, the CalPines are incredibly active and their their twenty twenty one plans are impressive compared to to what they've been in the early 2000s, etc. So seeing that consistency in development is encouraging for job growth. It's encouraging for our industry. Many of my clients are the mom and pop and the small to mid-sized energy service companies that provide, you know, critical equipment and or specific or specialized services to the geothermal sector. and And they're they're growing and they're doing great. And so it's a timely topic because we are growing and we need the investment. We need the decades of experience that all of these trained engineers and and industry leaders within the oil and gas industry can provide. And that doesn't mean if they're currently employed, they have to leave and enter the geothermal industry. That just means championing and carrying that flag within their hallways of saying, hey, have you considered this or have you have you looked at geothermal here because of the transferable technologies or because of the investments that a BP or a shell or an oxy are doing in the clean energy space? We desperately need that to catapult us up to being more synonymous with the solar and wind industry. But what people often forget is the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, but geothermal once developed and there's a a surface equipment to exploit that resource, it's never going away. You don't have to have, you know, an oil or gas-fired plant to to turn on at nighttime or when the wind doesn't blow. Geothermal is baseload. And so when you get down to to those types of discussions with the utilities, when power purchase agreements come to the table, it's a very easy argument to make. Geothermal is always on. That's never going away.
1: Yeah, Patrick. Let's expand on that a little bit because, and and I asked I asked Gray that question as well. But when you think about geothermal in the spectrum of power generation and and how that plays out, when you think about solar, you think about wind, you think about nuclear and natural gas and oil and everything else obviously it's always on. I guess the core of the earth is always hot. (laughs) So (laughs) to the extent you can access it. So talk a little bit about, can it really function as a baseload power generator? You know, you think about coal exiting and we think about trying to bring on other baseloads that, you know, there's such an opposition to nuclear, Mm -hmm. I I think largely emotional, but talk a little bit about how it fits into the overall spectrum of, of various power generation opportunities that we have in front of us.
5: Yeah. So one of the most frustrating things that all of my my industry colleagues face on a day-to-day basis with geothermal is the time it takes to go from greenfield to selling power and I'll spare the, some of those details but essentially a lot of the cogs in the wheel or the delays or the hurdles that we face are frustratingly simple or a matter of education and outreach. One example is the time it takes to permit a geothermal well or a greenfield exploration project. Is like three to five, if not ten times longer than it takes to get an oil and gas permit or what have you, and that's, you know, that's economies of scale, that's familiarity, that's the people that you're talking to and, and the education levels of the Bureau of Land Management or what have you, and their familiarity with geothermal and other facets that are undefined because if they were, we'd fix them. So one of the hurdles in in having just geothermal rampant and the growth rampant, specifically in the U.S., is the development and the, the permitting duration, and then the cost. So there's only a handful of majors in the geothermal space that, I, that I've that i previously mentioned, the Cal Energies, the Cal Pines, the Ormats, and to the next level, like the Cirque Energies and the Energy Sources and, and what have you. And they've all done a great job establishing their portfolios and, and, and talking to the right people. But there's incredible amount of untapped geothermal on the outskirts of all these projects and throughout the western United States that are just not being touched because of one hurdle or another. And the more the more investment, the more attention that we get and largely being pushed by you know the oil and gas industry and their other desire to diversify, to become more carbon neutral or just purely because there's a workforce that's looking for work with the oil and gas experience. That is gonna push us over the top. That is gonna help us streamline these hurdles, help us finance these projects. There's so many greenfield projects that are not part of the portfolios of these bigger geothermal companies that just don't have the financing. There is often like a rule of thumb that you have to prove your resource with one or two wells on a geothermal project before you can really get your development and drilling financing? Well, it still takes five to $10 million to drill a couple of wells because unlike the more permeable and faster drilling projects in oil and gas that many of your listeners are used to, it can take 30 to 90 days to drill a seven to 10,000 foot well in geothermal because you're drilling into granite. You're drilling into much, much, much harder rock. And so there's a whole myriad of issues and hurdles and challenges and ways to streamline and investment opportunities, and, and I can go on and on and on, that if they all aligned, we could re- we could rectify a lot of this. And, and the idea with the pivot conference that Jamie Beard at the Geothermal Entrepreneurial Organization put on earlier this year was to enlighten the large part of your listeners and your audience on the, the incredible potential, the future of geothermal, and how with just a little bit of help, a little bit of love, a little bit of you know, whatever you want to call it, investment or, or their a time and attention could catapult geothermal into a whole nother level that would dramatically change the energy transition in our and our energy reliance, if you will, within the US.
2: So I want to touch base on that touch base on something around that right before we go. And that is so we've talked about obviously the big ones, super majors, they have all kinds of you know capital and investment and people and time and locations to kind of R and D certain things and, and go those, those directions. And then some of the bigger names we know in your experience, instead of just like a single person or a job skill, like a driller, like a directional driller or an engineer transitioning as an individual, where do you see some opportunities for companies that may be not quite as big as that, that in terms of, you know, CapEx and re- resources or they could maybe p- pivot the company kind of like, Terrapin did, and move into the ge- potentially into the geothermal space. Does anything stand out, maybe from that conference or from your own personal
5: experience? I can definitely say that the industry is always looking for highly skilled drilling minds. We have an enormous. What am I trying to say? We have, we have an incredible network of really really smart people behind the scenes that are developing new methods of identifying geothermal potential and the exploration and greenfield science and whatnot. And we have really, really experienced and smart drilling minds. But in order to develop more, we need more skilled drilling people. But to one of one of the biggest hurdles in, in making drilling geothermal cheaper, faster, more obtainable, more scalable is the technology side, The the temperatures that these tools are having to withstand or be put through just to get to the resource. A lot of the quote unquote smart drilling in geothermal happens is very shallow. And then they hold their angle with, with very, very, very simple technology because the temperatures that they're getting. And so, you know, what my time at scientific drilling, there was a lot of questions being asked about well, will they, will they need this tool? Will they need that tool? Well, yeah, you can if you have the super heat shields and you have the rubber seals and the mechanics of the tool itself that can withstand that heat in those temperatures. And that's where you see a lot of the Department of Energy money going. That's where you see a lot of these other offshoots and private financing, et cetera, to develop incredible technologies to do incredible things at incredible temperatures down hole. And so if, if the oil and gas industry, and, and a lot of them are, there's a lot of Baker Hughes, there's a lot of Schlumberger, there's a lot of Halliburton scientific drilling people, just to name a few, that are putting money into developing incredible technology. And then there's also the, the companies like Strata Global, a UK-based company working on some pretty incredible drilling technologies and others. And so if, if, if anyone's listening out there, I highly encourage, do a little bit of reading and find ways and whatnot, or contact me offline, and I can help identify some of those pain points that our industry faces day in and day out that can really, really change the narrative. And for anyone that's, sorry, I'll finish on this. For anyone, this is not even a plug for myself. It's a plug for another friend of mine. If you're looking for any any insight, any news, any data on the geothermal industry, go to thinkgeoenergy.com. It's an incredible resource for anything geothermal. And so if you're wanting a, a quick read on a weekly basis, go there.
2: Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes and we'll take it from there. Patrick, my friend, thank you for taking the time to come give us some insight on this. It was, it was brilliant.
5: Yeah, it was great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Hey everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for March, 2021. This month we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial Area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, and the TAMU-SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in.
2: On behalf of the Elevate Podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, We want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at OGGN.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week.
0: Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration.
1: It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh G in the power head innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh G in the power here to innovate. Ha!